but it, it's not a it's not a gold rush you know um the best projects take time you know and they take time because it takes time to prove credibility so yeah i think if, if you're saying to me what do we need to do we need to keep at it we need to scale it and we need to be patient with it but it is all of our problem you know we all created this you know this issue of our planet that we live in welcome to smarter markets a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. Welcome to Demystifying Carbon Markets on Smarter Markets. I'm David Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. I'm thrilled to have Phil Hardwick here to kick off this series on the carbon markets. Phil is the COO of Base Carbon and has spent the past two decades in the carbon markets working with both carbon project developers and investors to bring investment capital to high-quality projects that reduce and remove carbon emissions to fight climate change. Hi, Phil. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Thanks, Dave. You've worked in green finance, carbon, environmental markets for over 15 years, and you've been demystifying the carbon markets for your clients for many of those years, and I'm really happy to have you here today to help do the same for us. It's the first episode of the series, so let's start at the beginning. We talk about carbon markets, plural. There's not a single carbon market, but there are many different markets and types of markets that fall under this broad umbrella of the carbon markets. Can you walk us through the landscape? Like, what are these markets and what do they trade? What are they for? First and foremost, what are they for? They are for tackling the negative externalities of our existence on this planet. You know, what we do commercially, um, and in our daily lives uh, has an, a negative impact on, on our environment. We all know this. And carbon markets or environmental markets are mechanisms that we've developed over the last 20, 30 years of, of economic thinking that can help use market mechanisms to challenge and address and redress um, some of these problems. I think when we're talking today, we're really talking about carbon markets. Um, we have had previous environmental markets, markets that tackled acid rain, which were incredibly effective. And, and carbon markets are, are what we're using as a term now to tackle the climate change um, issues created by greenhouse gases. Um, but carbon is the base currency of these gases. You know, carbon markets could actually mean the emissions from a number of, of harmful gases, hydrofluorocarbons, carbons, methane, and of course, carbon. We just use carbon as the base currency. Um, so I think that's the, the first term for, for everybody to remember. It's not all just carbon and ignoring methane. Carbon reduction projects cover all of the gases. A couple of terms that uh, crop up are compliance markets and voluntary markets and carbon offsets and carbon emissions credits. So compliance and voluntary, well, that's relatively straightforward to understand. Voluntary doesn't mean do what you want, you know, and claim that you've done something good. Voluntary markets mean that you, you are making an action voluntarily, but you follow the rules of the voluntary carbon markets. 
compliance markets means there's a law. You know, you're mandated by some law or instruction to behave in a certain way um, that either generates or um, provides, you know, credits for your actions. So that's what we mean by voluntary and compliance. Carbon offsets or carbon emissions reductions, as I prefer to call them, and carbon emissions credits are two quite different things. Carbon emissions credits are, are those units which are used under cap and trade mechanisms. The most notable cap and trade mechanism is, of course, the EU ETS, which was um, created by the European Union following the Kyoto Protocol, which opened up the, you know, the global consensus to use market mechanisms to address climate change. And a cap and trade scheme was adopted in the European Union. Effectively, we set a total limit on pollution and everybody is is doled out tickets to their fair share of that that pollution and we're talking about you know in the European Union over 10,000 maybe 12 15,000 uh, installations that have some sort of negative environmental impact they're monitored and you know their maximum emission is um, allocated to them in terms of certificates if they over pollute they need more certificates if they under pollute they can sell the certificates, um, but there's no creation of a certificate. They're, they're, they're given out by the state, by the system that's administering the scheme. And then they are traded like a currency in amongst the participants. I think for, for today's purposes and what's really a hot topic in capital markets, commodities markets right now is, is carbon emission reduction projects. And they, they can be compliant and they can be voluntary. The most prominent at the moment is the voluntary market. But what we're talking about here is using capital to invest in, in projects that effectively reduce emissions somewhere outside of your, op of your operations or your jurisdiction. So you might be investing dollars into the reforestation of an area that is going to sequester carbon over time and you're being monitored and you're using those credits um, as a tangible and fungible um, unit to put against your, the commitments that you're making to reduce climate change, but they don't necessarily anything to do with what you do as a day job. So I hope that, uh, that that clears something up. I mean, this market is, of course, for everybody, but the major participants are, of course, those that pollute the most. You know, and of course, as we know, that's the you know the fossil fuel industry, the heavy industry, the airlines. Um, but as we realise more about our impact on, on planet Earth, it's increasingly, you know, clear that it's the supply chain for food. You know, it's the multinational companies and all of us, you know, play a part in that. So the market participants are all of us. But of course, some sectors are far more polluting than others. Yeah. And over your career, I mean, you've worked with all sides of these markets. Can you introduce us to what are some of the roles of the various folks in the markets? Uh, what types of participants and what roles do they play? And, you know, what has your role been in these markets? You know, my role goes back, you know, to my studies of economics at university. And, you know, back then, you know, in the late 1990s, environmental economics was a very small subset of the, you know, the economic syllabus. But it was one that interested me and one that I studied in and one that I wrote about. Um, you know, today, if you look at economics courses, they're absolutely full of environmental markets and sustainability courses, which is a fantastic thing. Uh, my career, you know, has been in the banking sector and in investment banks and as a, you know, as a consultant and advisor, um, but always in the field of energy, carbon, clean energy and commodities. So, you know, that's my background. And, and, and as the European Union opened up its, 
EU ETS, you know, as both a cap and trade scheme, but also having fungible carbon offsets within it, you know, the role that I've played is as a project developer. Uh, and that is going and finding projects around the world to either invest in or develop from scratch that create emissions reductions and using either the banks or clients capital to make sensible, you know, long-term investments into these schemes. But as I said, you know, it's not just a voluntary, you know, mechanism where you go out and you say that, oh, we've done this, you know, project and we've reduced emissions and, and please, you know, believe us, there's a whole infrastructure that underpins underpins these markets. And in fact, you know, the, the infrastructure for emissions reductions and voluntary emissions reductions goes back to the late 1990s. And it really hasn't changed in its infrastructure particularly much. You know, a methodology is proposed to uh, in a registry organization and the biggest, most notable and respected at the moment in the market are definitely Vera, the gold standard and the American Carbon Registry. Those registries and those overseeing bodies will um, either accept or reject the methodology. They'll put that methodology up for public scrutiny um, and it can be peer reviewed, which is a, is a great process. But effectively, you know, at some point that methodology is accepted or rejected. And once it's accepted, other participants can use that methodology, which is effectively a, a codification of the rules and assessment criteria for a type of project. Uh, and, and they can implement their own project. And, and, and that's how the system worked in the late 1990s. And it's how it works today. In fact, when the European Union, you know, adopted carbon offsets into its cap and trade scheme, making them fungible units, it looked to the voluntary carbon markets for the mechanism. The clean development mechanism of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is effectively the same system as for the voluntary carbon markets and the same that we have today. You know, what has changed through time is that is the projects that uh, that are used. So the transactions are you know, either as a legal requirement to create emissions reductions um, or they're for your own personal objectives. But the way that they're measured and the way that they're monitored has really not changed. And it is interesting that there is that symbiosis between the compliance and the voluntary markets. People often think of them as very distinct, but there is a lot of learning and feeding and growing off of each other, as you mentioned as well. I know you don't like the name carbon offsets, as you've said, and the, the, the preferred would be a carbon reduction project. I think that's right. But when we look out at the, you know, there are many different types of markets, but also many different types of these carbon offset sources or carbon reduction projects. Could you describe some of these to us? Because I think it's really important in that many people just think of an offset of like, oh, I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, or I'm doing something that has a negative impact, so I'm going to do this other thing. But the reductions themselves are projects that are having really positive impact. And I don't think people often get to hear about that who aren't deeply involved in the markets. That, that, that's absolutely right. And, and I think the point here is not all carbon offsets are created equal. You know, not all barrels of oil are equal. Not all uh, flows of electricity are exactly the same. Uh, you know, and it's the same with carbon market. And, you know, if you're investing in this area, you really do need to understand the difference. The structure of the market, the way that a, a project is created hasn't really changed, as I said. But if you look 10, 15 years ago, we were able to use carbon finance to fund renewable projects, solar, wind, you know, hydropower. You can still do that today, but they're going to struggle against the uh, test of additionality, i.e., 
would it not take place without carbon finance? So carbon finance, carbon offsets, carbon emissions reductions, call them what you like. The intention is that they, that they are the catalyst for making an investment happen. If a project or a methodology like photovoltaic stands on its own two feet financially, as it does now with the price of PV falling so dramatically over the last decade, you don't need carbon finance. And so you can't claim that it's additional. Equally, you can't have carbon finance if a law is in place to you know, protect an activity or, or, or um, you know, a polluting behaviour. So carbon has to be additional. It has to be, the carbon finance has to be the reason that something occurs. And of course, within that spectrum of what types of projects are there, there's a broad range. There's projects that reduce emissions, which is great. It's a very necessary process. And we have to both, you know, we have to keep reducing our or improving our efficiency you know, in our in our energy uses, but we also have to remove carbon from the atmosphere or sequester it. So, I think if you look at the evolution of projects through the last ten to fifteen years, you get some really interesting stories. As I said, you know, if you looked at carbon portfolio ten fifteen years ago, some of them were entirely made of small hydro in China, or wind farms or solar. You really won't find those today, and you will find a lot more nature based solutions. But in between here and there, you know, we've had some real fallovers. We had a methodology which produced an awful lot of um, CERs, so that's Certified Emissions Reductions, um, under the compliance scheme of the EU ETS, which was effectively the flaring of hydrofluorocarbons, the gases that are used to make refrigerants, you know, effectively torching that gas as it came out of, of flow pipes. Um, so, you know, what are you doing there? You're converting HFCs which are 23,000 times more polluting than carbon, into carbon. So that's a good thing. If you flare HFC, it's less polluting to the environment. But these projects had the perverse incentive of creating more flaring. You know, it's very cheap to flare, and you were getting an awful lot of credits because of the multiplier effect of 23,000 to 1 for doing not an awful lot. And so a lot of money flowed straight into these projects. It looked like a really great way to generate a lot of credits very cheaply but you know time catches up and you know it was soon apparent that these projects were not really delivering the the environmental impact that they you know were anticipated so that entire methodology became effectively none and void and a lot, a lot of people who had those in their portfolio or were having future credits were losing money on their investments so I think, you know, guys like myself and, you know, contemporaries of this market for the last 10 to 15 years are very cautious about which projects we invest in next. And I think, you know, across the nature-based solutions spectrum, you have to be very cautious as well. It's quite clear that planting a tree is an additional behaviour and it will sequester carbon. It's quite clear that delivering cookstoves, you know, reduces the fuel usage of millions of the population and has great additional benefits, uh, you know, to human health. Can we be quite so sure about, you know, protecting rainforests? Well, you know, it, it's, it's an area of debate for the market at the moment. But, you know, if you're saying that our carbon, you know, finance is effectively protecting a piece of forest, what are you really doing there? You call it a nature-based solution, but really it's a security-based solution. It's guys with guns. And, of course, you'll find that a lot of these projects really sell up the sort of SDG side of it. There's a lot of 
pictures of monkeys and parrots, which give a dopamine hit to the amygdala and make everybody feel great. But if you actually scratch the surface and think about it, that somebody's claiming to be protecting 100,000 hectares of land with carbon finance money, how are they actually doing that? And if you're not actually planting a tree, what are you actually doing that's additional? This area is a massive topic and we could have a, a whole podcast on its own on this topic. But, you know, is that really the role of private finance to be involved in those types of projects or should that be left to the governments? But, uh, you know, it, there is a, a huge element of caveat emptor in this market and you should be doing your research on exactly what types of projects you're investing into because it's not fully commoditized yet. You know, it trades in very similar ways to soft commodities. You know, there's there's a vintaging to these credits. They go off over time. Nobody wants emissions credits created in 2008. Everybody wants the ones created today. And of course, there's all the geopolitical risk of where your credit is based. But there is also, you know, the risk which is not obvious, which is one tonne of carbon emissions reduction is not the same as the next tonne. It comes from a very different place and is generated by a very different scheme. And so, as I said, caveat emptor to the investors who are looking at those types of projects. Yeah, it definitely seems like a market where you need to beware and need to have a you know experienced guides to help you negotiate and understand the quality of what you're looking to purchase. When you look across the quality spectrum that's out there today, I, you know I've heard you mention you know nature-based solutions, cook stoves, and then I think a lot of us will read in you know the press about more technological solutions. You know, pulling carbon out of the air and you know, combining it into rock and carbonates that can be sequestered away. When you look at the supply of projects that are technologically feasible at scale now, is it that more of the high quality are in the the nature-based camp and it'll be an evolution to the more technological or are both of those available now? I think think our evolution is definitely in the nature-based solutions. And um, I think that our best device for successfully sequestering carbon is currently still the tree or the plant life, you know, or, or the wetlands or the grasses. The grasses have a huge impact, which we've not particularly, you know, pioneered yet in this market. And it, and it is coming. But yes, the next, you know, the evolution is in, in, in the nature based solutions at the moment. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, investment dollars looking at these areas, clearly not just in what can we grow or what can we preserve, but what can we do to the soil, you know, biochar, which is a relatively simple process, you know, of creating uh, charcoal, you know, adding uh, agricultural nutrients to it and planting it in the soil. One, you know, helps sequester carbon and two, creates great knock-on effects for the plant life, the soil and the, and the fauna that grows, the flora and fauna that grow there. But yes, that's definitely where we are today. Where we are tomorrow has to be, you know, something more scientific. We know that the cement industry, the building industry, the construction industry are all looking very, very hard at, you know, building materials that sequester carbon by putting, you know, mixing new types of rock into the building materials that can hold the carbon. And of course, we don't know, you know, what the next great invention is going to be, but we keep, you know, keep our eyes on that. And this is what carbon finance is. It's at the vanguard of these developments. It's not, it's meant to be there to pioneer the next technologies. It's, it's not, you know, it's not there as just a, a way of permanently being green. You know, eventually we shouldn't need carbon finance and we certainly shouldn't need cap and trade schemes. They're, you know, they're catalyzers. But, 
we have to go through this process and we have to keep moving forwards. And when you say catalyzer, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, that, that's right, Dave. I mean, it, it is about catalyzing investment and it's about, you know, marginal costs of production on compliance schemes. It's about forcing behavior, increasing the price of the, the carbon credits means that companies have to invest in new technologies eventually because the price of the carbon credits is going up and up and up. And you can see that in Europe right now with, all, you know, super high carbon prices, which will force behavioral change. In fact, the price of the EU ETS credits right now is so high that it's becoming a political problem. It's, you know, it, it has it gone too far, right? You know, because it, it can't, you don't want to cripple technology and put it out of business, but you want to force behavioral change. That's marginal, you know, marginal cost and marginal abatement. And there's, you know, some fairly rudimentary economic theory that underpins that. In carbon emissions reductions projects in the voluntary emissions market in, in the CDM, it's a similar desired outcome to change behavior. But the idea is that the money can only be used when it puts a, an investment, you know, into profit because it's there. So you can get the credit at the end of it, which has a market value, if there isn't already a finance opportunity for this or if it's not common practice. So we can't use carbon finance for the solar PV on our roofs. One, there's probably subsidies or there certainly used to be subsidies supporting it. And two, the photovoltaic is just too cheap. You know, that's not a good place for carbon finance. But actually, if we can plant trees and that the fact that we can get carbon offsets or emissions reduction certificates at the end of that and they have a market value that can be sold which then means that the investment can take place it can cover the capex and the opex and you know, a profit can be made then that's a fantastic thing because we really in 25 years have not come up with a better mechanism for taking money out of corporate pockets and putting it against some of the negative externalities that corporates and our behavior on this planet have created that's the sharp reality is that it's a market mechanism that catalyzes new behaviors that just simply wouldn't take place in its absence and this is really the fundamental argument for for carbon markets is that what's the alternative because you know taxes are avoided and rules are ignored and you know carbon markets are not perfect but you know they've been a long time in development and have you know had great impacts and can be improved upon um, and, and, you know, it's a case of let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but let's just keep developing these markets so that they continue to deliver the kind of behavioral change and investment change that we really, really need. But yeah, carbon finance is not for every every scheme that is, is dreamt up. There's a huge amount of rigor in the process and it can only be invested for things that really, you know, would not occur without it. And I'd feel remiss right now if I let you go without walking through that, how do you operationalize these transactions and these projects? Could you walk us through, given your experience, what a typical carbon reduction investment or carbon offset transaction looks like if someone's coming into these markets that you know are still developing? I imagine a lot of it's bilateral. You're not just going to go to your you know Bloomberg terminal or to a screen and you know, make a purchase, but how does this work for someone looking to invest or obtain the offsets generated by a carbon reduction project? 
Yeah, so there are fairly nascent carbon exchanges occurring now, you know, and that's a necessary development of any market. Exchanges are often the cheapest to deliver outlet. Um, and in this market with such diversity between the projects, the honest truth is at the moment, most of the, you know, the trading is still really OTC. And in fact, if you, if you think that the, you know, the ultimate buyers of these projects are those companies that have huge net zero targets, they're not in this market to trade per se. It's a, that's a byproduct of any market, but their objective is to have emissions reductions projects that they can use for their own purposes. So a lot of the new and good transactions effectively are OTC and may never see the light of the, the traded market. But yes, you know, as it grows, there is um, you know, a real movement towards exchanges. One dynamic of the current market is that not a lot had been developed from the end of the EU ETS involvement and until the last few years when we've seen the explosion of net zero targets. So we have a somewhat of a, of a huge demand right now, but a production, you know, short, um, you know, a lot of the credits that are out there are either quite old and not particularly credible or they're from, you know, methodologies that can produce emissions reductions in scale quite quickly. And there could be issues there. But over the coming years, as that supply begins to catch up, I think you'll see that the exchanges have got a lot more trading on them. They've got a lot more liquidity, obviously, and a lot more differentiation. The market's got a lot more education about what it's buying into. And, you know, and the emissions reductions methodologies that are really credible, as we've seen over the last 15 years, will be the ones that stand the test of time. So, you know, the lessons from the past, you know, are being learnt. The great example that I have is the cook stoves, which is, you know, there really hasn't been a huge amount of criticism of that project methodology over the years. And 15 years later, it's one of the methodologies that still is in place. You know, as I said, solar wind have pretty much fallen by the wayside and aren't particularly desired anymore. And we have new project types in the nature-based solutions, but the really good ones stand the test of time. You know, they improve, the MRV improves, the, you know, some of the underlying humanitarian needs for these projects are, are a different problem that carbon markets can't quite address. But if it's a credible methodology, then it's, um, you know, it will stand the test of time and it will eventually find a way onto a traded, you know, exchange market if this process and, and this growth continues. Yeah, that's a great lesson that's been learned from the past. And I think, you know, with ESG investing having entered the mainstream in such a big way over the past couple of years, that, of course, we have many investors that are new to the carbon markets. But as you've made clear, the markets themselves aren't new. I've heard many participants refer to carbon markets today as carbon 2.0 or the evolution over the, the carbon 1.0 markets of the, the 2000s of that decade. When you look back over the evolution that's occurred, are there any other lessons that you think are important that we learn from what we were doing in the, the early 2000s that have, you know, need to be remembered today? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've definitely seen an, a stampede into certain methodology types that I'm cautious, you know, could be repeated because we have a lot of new investors now. Carbon 1.0, you know, there were a lot of new investors 
uh, you know, and then we got problems with, you know, methodologies like HFC and large hydro, you know, and I'm, I'm cognizant that it's easy for that to happen again with the wrong methodologies. And if there isn't much in the market, you know, and there's only red projects out there that, you know, of course, you know, everybody's going to jump on those. And, but if we do make mistakes, you know, we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because really we haven't seen a credible alternative in, 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 in 25 years. So we've got to just, you know, learn from the mistakes that we will make and keep improving. But yeah, be cautious about the methodology. I think make sure you're investing with a partner and somebody who's got a vested interest in the project. There's a, you know, there are a lot of horror stories about brokers in this market in both the compliance markets and in the voluntary markets. So do your research on who's selling it and, you know, and, and what, you know, this is one of those markets where you prefer to, for your, you know, your, the person you're buying from to have a vested interest in, in, in the project. You, you really do want that partnership, you know, cause these projects can last 10 to 15 years. And if you're serious about, you know, making a difference, you know, it's not a straightforward binary zero sum game kind of market. You will find, people who told you that they have bought carbon credits very cheaply you know i've got a project i'm buying all of it at five dollars you know and that's just to an experienced market practitioner that's a red red alarm bell right there because you know the world is so connected that it's very clear to the project developer very quickly if they the price that they've sold at is off market and that they're being taken for a ride and it's not a zero-sum game and what happens and we've seen this before is that if somebody loses they down tools, you know, the project falters, it stops. Um, so, you know, transactions have to be progressive. They have to share the revenues, you know, throughout the success of the project. And, but of course they need to cover the initial investment and make money and actually, you know, structuring transactions that do that successfully over time is difficult um, and challenging and everyone is different. And, you know, that's kind of the expertise that, that people who have been doing this a long time bring is that knowing that, you know, everything that glitters is not gold and that a good project is structured in a, in a very sensible way that shares, you know, risks and rewards. So I think that's very much a lesson from the past that has been learned. Um, but like I said, I think that the structure of these markets hasn't really changed. The, and that tells us something. You know, one of the most successful you know, products of the 20th century, the motor car, really is fundamentally the same car at the beginning of the 20th century, the same way it works as, as at the end. But you can't say that we didn't improve it. And I, I want to return to that point with the idea that just there's so much demand coming into these markets so quickly that as supply rises to try to meet it, you have to be very careful because it might not be quality supply. Um, so that raises the risks for people coming into the markets. But before, just on, you know, since we're trying to demystify the carbon markets, you mentioned red projects, which may not be familiar to people. Could you just give a, a, a brief uh, overview of what you mean by red projects? Yeah, uh, the red, the R, you know, it's reduced emissions from deforestation. That's what, you know, R-E-D-D stands for. Reduced emissions from deforestation means stopping deforestation. Now, of course, one of the great side effects of stopping deforestation is that you protect the habitats. But of course, you know, if you're talking about mature forests without a great deal of, of growth left to go, it's not actually particularly additional sequestration if they're fully mature. But you're taking credit for the stopping of deforestation. This is quite a divisive topic, you know. 
for uh, for our organisation, we're not particularly keen on that methodology. We don't think that it's it's absolutely a necessary thing to be done, but we'd much prefer that that stayed as the role of, of governments, which I think if, if we can't protect our own forests in the way that we would protect our borders, then, you know, we have serious issues. And I think that, you know, the moral suasion that is, is, is winning now to move us towards a more um, environmentally conscious way of living should be able to make our governments protect those lands. The secondary issues are that if you claim to be protecting 100,000 hectares of land, you're protecting a vast area. We're working on a project at the moment which is reforesting about 30,000 hectares. So that's planting new trees. Um, that's the size of Malta. So if you've got projects out there that are saying, you know, we're protecting 100,000 hectares, 200,000 hectares with carbon finance, you're effectively saying, you know, we're the military, you know, we've got an operation that is the, you know, is effectively the military operations of a small country. And there's a couple of things there is one, have you really? And two, you know, what other problems are lurking when you're, when the corporate sector is taking on that role? And so for that reason, you know, we start to put that in the category of the HFC of, okay, is this a bit of a problem waiting to happen? Because to us, you know, whilst you get a great feeling about, you know, thinking that your dollars have protected orangutans and it's absolutely necessary, is it really, you know, an emissions reduction? And is there that page one risk, you know, and that is the COO tapping into his fried egg, you know, his boiled egg in the morning and, and spitting it all over the front page of the newspaper because there's his company with a real headache, you know, because something's gone wrong with his, you know, security forces in an area of the world, which is, you know impossible to police effectively on a uh, you know at a commercial level so you know that's i guess where we're coming from with that one well that's very helpful and another important lesson uh from the past that we don't want to forget because they're you know managing risk is an important part of these markets and the the commitments that bring people to these markets need to be met in credible ways with quality projects i want to return to the point on the demand you know you and I have talked about this in the past, and you know there are a lot of numbers that are put out there in terms of you know how large these voluntary markets could potentially grow. You know there are current estimates of around a billion dollars a year, and demand you know around a hundred million tons of CO two per year. Mark Carney's task force on scaling the voluntary carbon markets has estimated that over the next 10 years, you know, it could be a demand of one to two billion tons of CO2 per year in a hundred billion plus market. So there's a lot of debate about these numbers, but what seems to be clear is that we're probably going to have a lot more demand than we will supply. So what I'm really curious about is what, will, in your view, will it take to grow the supply of quality carbon offsets to meet the level of demand that we're likely going to need to meet if we're going to meet these climate change objectives? First of all, calculating the size of that demand is a really challenging business. If you, you know, I can only give anecdotal numbers. And, and you know, if you look at Microsoft um, taking their emissions back to 1979 and all of their, you know, their processes calculated at about 7 million tonnes, I think. I think that's about six months of Qatar Petroleum's offshore activities. You know, Qatar Petroleum is a fairly, you know, well, it's a big LNG player, but it's not really, a, you know, it's not really in the top 10 of, of oil majors. It's just a phenomenal short position. 
then you've got the factor of how much of this is actually going to be offset. You know, we've seen Exxon, you know, make great strides into, you know, the climate change um, problem and have said that they, you know, are not particularly keen on using offsets. So if one of the biggest oil players isn't going to use offsets, it's only going to use it for one to two percent of its activities. You know, how do you, you know, how do you calculate that? So is that the same as Shell? No, I think Shell's far more adventurous in its, in, in its, in the way it tackles its, its climate change obligations. You've got so many variables that putting a, a number on it is really a challenge. But anecdotally, it's definitely huge because the phone is ringing. You know, our clients have always been the corporate sector, so we get a somewhat of a temperature gauge from it and it is you know there is an incredible demand out there at the moment because there's only so much that certain companies can can do if you're a nestle you can really start to tackle the seed to shelf activities that you have and you can make great changes you can inset but if you are bp you know whilst you are changing from you know being a fossil company into renewable energy company and let's make no bones about it that's what they're doing they're not going to reduce their activities such that they can produce clean fossil fuels they can't you know the the strategy for our oil sector is that it will not be an oil sector eventually it will be a renewable energy you know sector um so they because they physically can't do this this task is insurmountable um the science isn't there yeah so they, they change their business model what is required is huge and it definitely needs a lot of work to think about the next technologies that's the biochars and the technologies that we don't know of but actually if we're going to get planting trees which is you know again going to be challenging because planting trees in the right way is not going to work perfectly every time you know economically it only just about stacks up at the moment and when we look at projects and we're looking for conservation trees there just isn't the data you know, there's there's bucket loads of data on commercial trees, eucalyptus, acacia, and all the trees that have been commercially forested. But actually, if you start trying to find data for um, indigenous species in Southeast Asia, you're scratching through university records, you're scratching through old books, you know. So there's a lot of infrastructural scaling that be, needs to be required. And there's a lot of patience with the system. And, you know, people have got to be aware that there is no money press here. This is not a printing press of carbon certificates. If you've, if somebody's offering you a carbon, and you know, a new, a new carbon project, and they're saying that, you know, it's producing credits next year, you know, you really need to do your due diligence because it's a slow process. It can be a very rewarding process, both in the output of what you achieve and also financially. You know, you can set up projects that last a very long time, have a great impact, and a great revenue generating models and have and are good all round but it it's not a it's not a gold rush you know um the best projects take time you know and they take time because it takes time to prove credibility so yeah i think if if you're saying to me what do we need to do we need to keep at it we need to scale it and we need to be patient with it but it is all of our problem you know we all created this you know this issue of our planet that we live in i think larry fink was it today even said you know, it's not about tackling the, you know, climate change. It's about, you know, it's about tackling our existence because it's not climate change is, is about our, our activity and our existence on this planet. You know, that's what it's about. It's about survival. Thanks again to Phil Hardwick from Base Carbon. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week with Mark Lewis, head of climate research at Enderan Capital Management 
as we discuss what's gone right, what's gone wrong, and what we can learn from one of the world's leading compliance carbon markets, the European Union's emissions trading system. This episode is brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.